Sub GW, SUP, or SUP, stands for Sustainable Urban Planning. This is George Washington University's Sustainable Urban Planning graduate student-run podcast. We interview thought leaders, faculty, fellow students, alumni, and working professionals to talk about sustainable urban planning topics, themes, issues, and news not just in the DMV, but across the country and around the world. Tune in each semester for a new season, new ideas, and to hear what's up with Sustainable Urban Planning. Welcome to this week's discussion on park equity, where with the help of our guests, we will explore cultural competency in park programming and design. My name is Joy McFadden. And my name is Garrett Johnson. We are both first year sustainable urban planning students at GWU and with undergrad degrees in environmental engineering and geography respectively. In an increasingly diverse world, it's super important that public spaces create welcoming environments for everyone using them regardless of their skin color, religious beliefs, sexual orientation, or cultural background. Which is why we define cultural competency as a process of identifying and creating an environment that meets the needs of an area's demographic makeup relating to the ideas, customs, and social behavior. For parks, this concept can affect the programming, staffing, and discussions regarding the built environment. Our guest today, Maya Spencer, has a great deal of experience with this concept. Would you please introduce yourself, Maya, and let us know a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Maya Spencer. I'm a community engagement coordinator at Portland Parks and Recreation, um, which is in Portland, Oregon. Um, I've been with the city about 15 years and do a variety of community engagement, particularly around the parks replacement bond, which we passed in 2014, but also my team works on community engagement for um, any kind of parks policy, design, planning, and programming. We're so great to, grateful to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to get to talk about these issues. So thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> so my first question is, how do you define cultural competency and why do you believe that is vital to have that in park planning? Mm -hmm. I think for me, um, the city of Portland, when we talk about equity, um, the, the definition we use is that when one's identity cannot predict the outcome. Um, that's, that's kind of our vision of what, what is an equitable world look like, at least in our city. Um, and so in doing so, then we have to kind of acknowledge that obviously there's many institutions and systems and structures that impact this from happening. And that's why we're talking about equity, because it, it hasn't been equitable in, the, in our past, especially in our city, where we do have, um, in particular in Oregon, a racist history as a city government. Um, there have been a lot of decisions that weren't always made in an equitable way. So for me, when I talk about cultural competency, I think it's that um, we're moving from just this awareness of that we need diversity, this awareness that we need equitable, actually moving into an action. Um, and so to me, it's, it's moving from awareness to action is how I think about cultural competency. And that's what we need in order to be a truly equitable organization is cultural competency. And that, that action to me looks um, like things like, first of all, seeking to understand how other people view the world and what that looks like. Um, adapting your communications and your outreach and the way you talk to the, you know, each different constituent, each different community organization based on your understanding. So I think honoring that the differences are okay. There's different stories about the world. There's different cultures. There's different traditions. There's different values that different folks share. 
And there's different ways of learning and, and ways that groups make decision making and all of that is okay. There's not one way that is right. Um, and that's a really hard thing in city government to understand because we tend to think our way is the right way, especially kind of dominant culture, hierarchy, all those kinds of things that, that happen in organizations. But we need to understand that walking into a community that they may do things in a different way that we do, um, especially in a government fashion. And most importantly, I think cultural competency is, is that it's, it's an ongoing cycle, right? We're never done with it. You need to continue to reflect and learn, and there's always going to be a different group, a different organization you haven't worked with in the past, new levels of understanding. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing process. It's, it's not like you get to put up a certificate on your wall um, and say, all right, I'm culturally competent, done, check, move on. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's always new things to learn. So that's, I think, what I think about when I think about what cultural competency is. And when you asked about why is it vital to have it into our parks, um, I mean, that to me is is obvious. Our parks belong to everyone. Um, that's why I always say to folks when I'm going out, especially, you know, designing a new park is that this park isn't for me. You know, I live in this part of town like this park is for you that live in this part of town. Right. So our parks belong truly to everybody. Um, and but as I mentioned before, we know that there's been been many barriers in the past that have kept folks from participating or feeling welcome, feeling included. Some of those were really intentional, visible things. You know, we've all heard the stories of, you know, swimming pools where folks were denied entry because of the color of their skin. Um, there's also just a lot of cultural differences, right? Um, the Native Indigenous community has a very different relationship with the land than soccer players do, right? In the way that they view land. And we need to work towards a park system that is really welcoming and inclusive to all. And that requires that kind of cultural competency to understand what that what that looks like for each different group. So. No, that was um, that was great. <laughs> that was really, it was a, a concept that we were had a hard time defining. And I feel like you really hit the nail on the head on a lot of issues, especially when um, seeking to understand and adapting communications, because you can create something uh, in a park and it works. But then as more people move in and more different cultures, you got to adapt that to meet their needs as well. And like you mentioned, mm -hmm. structure for everyone. So that's a that was an excellent point. Um, and then your uh, outcome and awareness. A lot of times, you, people do have they're aware and woke about a situation, but there's no outcome or there's no mm -hmm. results. And you pointed out that you need action to uh, put that into um, motion. You can't just say it; right. you gotta actually do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, because when I first started working at the city. You know, it was in the early days, we talked a lot about diversity development. And so we would have, you know, monthly cultural celebrations, you know, where we would, you know, have some food from a different culture or whatever. But how does that actually really move you into action? You know, and so I think the next step, you know, as I've seen now, our city talks more about equitable and applying in their, you know, racial equity lens. That's actually moving us more from just like, oh, we have knowledge that there's different people out there. But how do we actually now move that forward into what do we do with that information and how does that change? how I as a city employee actually behave and act in my daily business, right? Okay, great. So my next question would be, what do you think is your is the biggest barrier to achieving cultural competency in parks programming and design? First of all, thinking about um, the barriers in design, um, particularly, is I think the biggest challenge we have is that our design staff um, don't always reflect the community itself. Um, at least particularly here in Portland, Oregon, um, most of the architects, landscape architects, engineers, planners, 
it's a very white dominated um, field and there's not a lot of great diversity. So, you know, as I talked about before, you can obviously learn cultural competency, you can work towards it. But a lot of these folks in these professional degree programs haven't necessarily been encouraged to develop that, right? Engineers are taught how to engineer, right? Um, you know, they're not necessarily thinking about who's involved and who's not and those kinds of things. So until you really get more diversity in the field of design, um, that is always going to be the primary barrier, you know, and I've, I've seen some firms start to have more diversity. Um, you know, the other day I was in a meeting with um, uh, you know, someone that spoke another language that was on one, one of the architect teams. So he was able to directly respond to a member of the community in that community member's language. And, you know, just imagine how that felt to have the architect talk to you directly in your language versus, you know, getting interpreted and, and feeling like your message didn't get across. Um, so that to me is a big barrier in, in design world. It's just when I look across the field, it, it's still very lacking. And I think a lot of young kids um, particularly from the BIPOC community, don't know about these career opportunities, you know, and so I think that's kind of where that has to get started. But I think on the programming side, it's how do we get to more authentic relationships when we talk about programming and what folks want to see um, in our parks and in our community centers. And, you know, you need to, again, have authentic relationships with those community groups so they're involved in designing the programs and activities and the things that we do in our parks. Um, because otherwise, it's folks sitting on this side of the wall saying, well, this is what we think that the, the community wants um, without really having a clear relationship and an understanding. So that's something we're trying to work towards more on our recreation programming side. Um, we just recently passed a parks levy for the next five years. And one of the um, big exciting things about the parks levy is that we're going to be moving away from kind of our, our recreation model in the past has been really based on a fee-based structure. So we're hopeful now with the funding from this levy, we can move to more of a um, free or reduced, you know, um, fees for, for joining in the recreation programming. And that will also allow us to really increase and improve the kind of programming that we do. And so we've begun doing some listening sessions and other kind of outreach to begin working with communities that we haven't maybe worked with in the past. Um, but like I said, we're just at the starting point of that. Um, because we know in the past we recognize that fees were obviously a barrier for folks. Yeah, I'm glad you guys acknowledge that because just from my own experience working in parks, I can definitely say that having a lot more free programming just helps bring in a lot more people because a park is really a luxury for a lot of people, not something mm -hmm. that they need to experience on a regular basis. And so making yeah. luxury more affordable is so fantastic for them and just makes it a common place for them, which is what we want at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah, we've had huge success. We have a summer free for all program, we call it. And it's a whole series we do every summer that's like, you know, free swimming sessions, free movies in the park, free concerts, free lunch um, and other activities happening in the parks. And so that, you know, is kind of the vision of what we want to move towards more of, um, because that's really what our parks are for. And that invites people in, it gives them something to do, especially for families that maybe don't have, you know, amazing summer vacations planned. It's like, here's the plan, kids, there's your park, <laughs> you know, that's your vacation, go over there. It sounds like you guys created a good summer vacation for them. So, mm -hmm. so here's a follow-up question for that. Um, have, how have you personally handled conflicting cultural values in any of the programs that you've had to create? 
you know, often in the past when we designed community engagement processes, we designed it from a very kind of dominant culture, American culture thinking of like, okay, people will come to us if we're the government, they should come to us. They will speak up if they've got something to say. Um, they, they'll understand how the system works. And they actually will believe that, that if they tell us something, the government will listen, right? That's like how a lot of our engagement was set up in the past. Like we're going to have a meeting downtown on, you know, noon on a Monday, and if you care about this issue, you'll show up and sign up in advance and, and testify, right? Um, <laughs> so I think I think what we've you know tried to do is um, is change up our engagement model so that um, we can reach out to folks that that maybe have a different cultural understanding of how to work with government and how to interact with government, and especially um, you know when it comes to our immigrant and refugee population here in Portland. You know, folks that have had a wide range of different experiences with government before coming and moving here to become, you know, a new resident in our city. And they may not understand that, like, we sincerely mean we want you to come and design your park, you know, when we ask them to. Um, because, you know, if you come from some country that the government didn't do any, you know, did never ask you about things. Um, like, I, I think about I went to um, Vietnam last year and I was talking to a university student there about what my job was. She's like, so here in Vietnam, like, the government, they get some money and then they, they decide to put a statue in the park and see there's that statue over there and they just put it in there. They didn't ask us. They didn't ask what we want. And if they'd asked us, we probably would rather have seen like a badminton court or something else, you know. But no, they put in a statue and then they got more money and then they put in another statue, you know. And so that was her experience in Vietnam, right? So imagine you come to the U.S. and have say, come to this community meeting, <laughs> you know. We want to know what you think and what you, you know probably she wouldn't have come because she wouldn't have even believed that the government was, you know, truly asking what she wanted in her parks. Um, one way that we've gotten kind of um, worked, worked through that is um, we work with a program called Community Engagement Liaisons. So they're actually folks that we're, yeah, we're able to contract with um, that are folks that are native speakers from those different cultural communities. And that way they they serve as both kind of a cultural ambassador. So they tell us what we should do better. Like they're like, well, you know, if you want to reach the Spanish speaking community, this is how I would do it. Um, or, you know, this concept is going to be confusing for them. Or, you know, here's here's how I would recommend let's do this meeting here at this place and we'll we'll get people to come that way. And you need to serve food and you know, those kinds of things. Um, then also because they are a native speaker, they are able to help with the outreach and and you know go out and talk to folks in that that community and in that language group and say, hey, you know, here's why you should come to this meeting, here's why it's important. Um, in the past, we used to just get something translated, right? We would get a flyer, we'd get it translated into English and Spanish, and then it would, you know, we'd put it out and we're like, oh, maybe someone will show up at our meeting because they saw a, a flyer in Spanish. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't usually result in a lot of turnout because a flyer doesn't really actively recruit you as much as a person that you, someone who's from your community, who speaks your language, you trust. It gets people over that barrier of walking in the door. Um, and then, um, so yeah, in the past we would have, a, we'd put out a flyer and then we'd have an interpreter that would show up half an hour before the meeting, right? They'd never worked with us before. They were just someone we hired through a service to show up that night and interpret and translate the information. Um, so again, they didn't have a relationship with this community at all necessarily. So with the community engagement liaisons, when they come to the meeting, then also they're working through the whole design process with us on this project. So they get to know the content, they get to know the project. 
you know, the, the interpretation, it becomes more of a conversation than just me, them interpreting what I'm saying to this community member. You know, they're able to explain the project to the community member because now they've worked through the different, you know, parts of the design process. So um, I think, you know, we've found that been really successful in ways of, of reaching folks that have different cultural values or different understandings of government. <laughs> That is fantastic to have like a really personal touch in there, especially with how big of a language barrier things are. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's really great that you guys are getting people from the community to be a part of the planning because I think that's just the easiest way to make them believe that this is their part truly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's really wonderful when we're able to follow through. Like, for example, um, earlier this year, we did a meeting with a um, group of women called the Guerreras Latinas that um, meet regularly at a, an organization near one of our parks that we're working on. Um, and so we, we showed them in February the three different design concepts for the park, you know, and, and got the feedback on what did they like about each of the three design options? What did they not like? What were their big priorities? And then later this um, summer, when we had the final design um, in July, we were able to go back to the same group of women and say, okay, we heard you said all these, you know, these were the five things you really wanted. Here they are in the design. And we were able to point to, you said you wanted a covered space for the winter so that you can get outside and exercise. And here that is. And here's the splash pad. And, you know, here's the soccer field. And, and so it was really wonderful to kind of close that loop, too, of like, you gave us your input in February, and here we are in July showing you the park design that has your input in it. And now we're going to go and build that, you know? Um, so that's also great when you can kind of keep that relationship going. No, that's great. You made that connection. Um, I think that what you spoke about earlier with the interpreter, you're right. You don't get that relationship. You're just regurgitating <laughs> what somebody else is saying, but you guys actively had somebody in that community, someone they could relate to, relay this information and so it builds that trust exactly and you bridge that like what you said earlier with awareness and then action and then you got mm -hmm. both <laughs> our last question um which project had the greatest impact on you personally um the project that really made a big impact to me was, um, well, I'll start with the, the original name of the project was Lynchview Park. Um, now, first of all, I have to tell you, I was quite shocked we had a park named Lynchview. I actually never knew this until, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I see everyone's face like, so obviously I don't explain, like, you know, it's not a, not a great name. Um, and I didn't even really know, was it a park in our, our system? Because it was kind of a forgotten about park. Um, it was on the very edge of our, our city on the, the far east. Um, so the Lynchview name um, actually came from, there was the Lynch family lived in, in the area in the early 1900s and they donated, they had a large farm acreage they'd gotten through the land donation claim act, right? So they donated the first one acre for the very first like one room schoolhouse in the area. And then after that, every school around there used the Lynch name. So they were the Lynch school district for a while and they had Lynchview, Lynch Park, or not Lynch Park, Lynch Plaza. Lynchwood, and so forth. So, um, so we inherited this park that was called Lynch View, <laughs> named after the Lynch family. So, okay, good. Hopefully. But, but you know, you have to give the context. This this park was and the school was named in about the 1960s in Portland, Oregon. It's not like people didn't know about lynching, right? You know, so so putting together the words Lynch and View was like. You know, it, it maybe wasn't happening in that immediate area, but it was certainly known about in 1960s U.S. Um, so just to give a little history there. 
Um, so we finally had some money to actually invest in this park through both the parks bond and then also we had some other funds we call system development charges. So I was starting on a project there to do outreach for that design process. And of course, you know, immediately my red flag went up and was like, well, maybe we can change the park name while we're at it. You know, <laughs> like what a great opportunity. And actually right as we started the project, the school district was actually had made the same decision that they were going to start a name change as well. Um, so at first we waited to see, you know, well, maybe it's because right now the, the park matched the school name. They were both named Lynchview. So we thought, well, maybe we'll wait and see and we'll just match it up again when they're done with their process. Um, so they chose to name the, the adjacent school Patrick Lynch Elementary um, and Patrick was the original landowner. And when we looked into Patrick's past um, and his history, he had um, participated in the Indian Wars of like the 1800s and of course had gotten his land through the Donation Land Claim Act, which is largely you know, land that has been taken from the native indigenous community. So we felt like that wasn't really the right name for our park. So we became a, began a name change process. Um, and so we formed a committee and, and evaluated different options, um, which was really fun. And you know, it's like naming a baby, right? You gotta think about it carefully. <laughs> The name our committee ended up picking was Burdell Burdine Rutherford. Um, this is actually the first park that we ended up that we have named after a black woman solely in the city of Portland. So we have a few um, community centers and parks named after black men and one named after a black couple, but we did had no parks otherwise honoring black women in our city. So the committee felt like this was a really unique opportunity to be that first. It was a really great story that the more that I learned about Burdell, um, I kind of came to fall in love with her. Um, you know, like just one of those women, you're like, wow, I would have loved to have known her. And her family actually came out from Oklahoma um, in the early 1900s, I think it was. And she was just a baby when she got here to Oregon, but her, her family was black and her mom had heard that, um, that if you came to Oregon, you could get some free land. So, and she was tired of the tornadoes in Oklahoma. So she said to her husband, we're moving west, right? The American dream. Um, they get to Oregon though and find out that they couldn't own land because they were black. It was denied to them. Um, so here's two families. Here's the Burdine family and the Lynch family. The Lynch family came here, they got their land, they made a donation to the school, they get their name, you know, for the next century all in all these schools. The Burdine family does not get that same opportunity. But they, they end up moving to Washington, they get some land. Eventually Burdell comes to Portland and she marries Otto Rutherford. And they, um, in the 1850s, were active um, leaders of the NWACP here in Oregon. Um, they, he was the president, she was the secretary. And during their, um, their time with NWACP leadership, they actually ran it out of their, their house, basically. And um, their daughter, Charlotte, tells stories of remembering how um, they would you know, be mimeographing all of the different letters and campaign things in, in the living room. And she would help her mom with envelope stuffings and all these kind of mailing activities and stuff like that. Uh, their work led to the, um, to a major civil rights legislation in Oregon that they've been working on for 30 years that stopped the discrimination based on um, race, religion, or country of origin in public settings. So it was the Public Accommodations Act. Um, so that applied to things like hospitals and hotels and parks and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so that was a huge legacy that they did by passing that act as it kind of really set off a lot of other civil rights movements that happened here in Oregon. And then um, near the end of um, Verdell's life, she actually, um, so over her whole lifetime, she collected this huge archive of information about black life in Portland, um, you know, newspapers, photographs. 
um, a lot of programs from the different social clubs she was in that like, you know, a lot of these women were involved in these social clubs where they had scholarships and activities and all these things. And it was this massive collection near the end of her life of like boxes and boxes of information. And so her daughter, Charlotte, was tasked with what do I do with all this? Um, and so she ended up gifting it to Portland State University here, um, the, the archives um, <clears throat> at their school library. And so now it's this collection that students could use um, to you know, research and learn what black life was like during that kind of critical period of life here in Oregon. Um, and that's a lot of resources that weren't, you know, reported on in the mainstream newspapers or, you know, weren't things that were collected elsewhere. So it's a really amazing collection. It was great. It, it was, was nice perfect. <laughs> uh, and I'm truly not surprised that it was meaningful to them because of the just the history that Black people have in America, mm -hmm. of course, and the fact that many of our histories have been erased or we just don't know about them right. beyond what has been really publicized by mm -hmm. the media and things like that. So just being able to dive deep in and learn so much more about mm -hmm. who we are and where we come from, especially a success story, rather than right. really emotional and stressful. It, yeah. I, mean, I know it changed the life of so many people who now get to be part of the park, have a connection mm -hmm. and have a permanent legacy there. Because right. there was somebody like me who is out honored in this park that you guys created, so... Mm -hmm. Sounds exactly. Yeah, it's about representation. It's about all those things. And it's, it's funny because at first, you know, when I, I shared about the Rutherford story to our committee, I thought, oh, maybe we'll name it after both of them, you know, both Otto and Riddell, because they were certainly honorable folks. Um, but but there was a few um, women on the committee were like, no, we need a name after Riddell because we need the first park named after a black woman, you know, like she needs to be honored. And I think, you know, as I said, she was secretary of the NAACP and we all know like who does the real work, right? It's the secretary, you know, sure her husband was out there. He did some good work as president, but she was the one doing all that record keeping, all those notes, all that hard work, all that behind the scenes work that oftentimes doesn't get recognized, you know, and that was what Charlotte said to me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because when I started looking at our park names, you know, a lot of our parks are named fairly neutral things. They might be named based on the neighborhood, you know, like I live in the Woodlawn neighborhood, so my neighborhood park is Woodlawn Park. Um, but when you start looking at the names that are named after people, a lot of them are named after largely white men because that's who either um, donated the land to us or even sometimes sold the land to us and we still put their name on it. It's like, you know, we had to give them actual money for this land. And then we're like, oh, now we're going to put your name on here. <laughs> you know, like, um, and so the reason why we didn't, don't have a lot of parks named after, you know, black men, black women, um, you know, other folks of color is because it's about who owned land, who had that ability to donate land to us. Um, and that's really a structural decision that goes back decades and decades and decades, um, you know, to impact our park system today. You know, it's just... Like I said, a name kind of tends to stick around unless we, you know, really see like, wow, that name needs to go, you know. It's a, it's a really powerful thing what we put a name to and what your impression is when you walk into that park or that community center. So, you know. No, you're 100% you're correct. It, it goes with the, you know, the statues that's been torn down mm -hmm. in the summer and names of uh, university wings are forts. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, what's in a name? It, it could have a history right, right. that that is problematic. Even like you said, your first name was the founder, and you realize, well, his land may have gotten, you know, 
<laughs> some issues there. Yeah, and um, even the way he got the land that he he so far donated, but he donated native land. You know, yeah, exactly. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily his to give, and yet he got honored by it. You know. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting to me, and it was it was interesting in the timing of it. Like you mentioned, this was happening across the country as we kind of made this announcement, and of course, you know, we made the announcement back in May, right? Um, you know, it was right shortly after George Floyd, um, you know, was murdered, and and you know, the nightly protests had begun here in our city of Portland that you know went on for you know 100 days plus. We didn't even anticipate at the time, but. It was kind of a it was a funny timing when we came out with the video and the announcement because we've been planning it for the end of the construction, right? So we had actually made this decision in, in last fall, and then we're like, well, okay, well we'll wait to make the community announcement till we get to like the end, and they'll be like, come to your new park. It's called this, you know. Here's this big announcement, and people were like, oh, well, you guys are just doing this now because Black Lives Matter, and you're trying to be, you know, hip and cool and all this and responsive, and it was like. Well, we do want to be responsive to the social movement, but we actually planned this. Like, we've been working on this for like two years. <laughs> you know, people don't always realize, like, you know, how long city government takes to do things. And it was like, you know, yes, it's it's convenient timing, but you know, we didn't just make this up like last week. Like, this has been a process, you know. Um, but we didn't imagine that when we made this announcement, we'd be in the middle of this kind of major, um, you know, movement around racial justice was was a surprise, you know, and in the middle of the pandemic, right? So two things we didn't anticipate <laughs> back in, you know, December when we first kind of made the final recommendation. So, um, yeah, certainly a thing you'd, you'd never quite know what the future will look like these days. So, yeah. Especially in 2020. <laughs> yeah, especially in 2020, for sure. Be great. Yeah. Sounds great. Mm -hmm. um, and just in closing, um, do you have any thoughts for future park employees or planners that uh, pertaining to cultural competency that you want to impart on us? I think we'll go back to my, my original point of keep learning, right? Um, you're students now, and you might think, okay, I can't wait to this, get this degree, and then I will know everything. Um, but I'm still learning new things, and actually, that's what I love most about my job and my work is like, I, I get bored if I'm not learning, right? So it's like, I want to learn new things. And particularly right now, I mean, just in my lifetime, the work that's happened around the dialogue around cultural competency, like I said, you know, when I first started the scene, we talked about diversity development and now it's about equity and now it's about anti-racism. And so to me, it's fascinating to be part of this dialogue that's constantly changing and constantly evolving. And so, you know, my biggest advice to be a, as a student is like, you will always be a student in life. And that's actually going to make you best prepared to adapt because, you know, as we said, 2020 is uncertain. You know, we don't know what 2030 is going to look like, right? Um, so we all have to be adaptable and ready to learn and ready to engage. Um, and we learn so much from the community we work with that um, the more we think of ourselves as a learner, um, I think the better prepared we are to, to be humble um, when we work with the community and recognize we don't have all the answers. Thank you so much for sitting here with us today and talking to us about cultural competency. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Appreciate the personal touch too. Thank you for the story. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you all for listening today as we discuss park equity and cultural competency. Once again, our guest speaker was Maya Spencer, the community engagement coordinator from the Portland Parks and Recreation. You can find Maya's work and the story of Riddell Burdine Rutherford Park on the Portland Parks and Recreation YouTube page. You can also read about the project on the portland.gov website.
Thank you and stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to SubGW, George Washington University Sustainable Urban Planning Graduate Student Run Podcast. Catch us next time to hear more about what's up with urban planning.